as the sun beat down on their heads and the dust kicked up from underneath their sandals, several of the men had fallen behind. Now, they had become accustomed to making these long sort of travels on foot, and so it wasn't just exhaustion. It was more of a preoccupation. You know the kind where you just become so concerned over something that you just sort of begin to lose focus of the task at hand. Each one nervously scanned the landscape, their heads swiveling back and forth. You see, there weren't many road signs or mile markers to let you know how far you had until the next city. You just had to keep your eyes open for the landmarks. And none of the guys had really spent much time in this area, but yet they all began to suspect that they were getting dangerously close to some hazardous territory. As they began to round a a bend in the road, one of the guys in the back felt a sharp pain in his side. It was his buddy elbowing him, trying to get his attention, pointing to nearly the only sign that they had seen. And the men could tell, even from where they stood, that someone had scratched a really large bad word into it. It was the S word. It read Samaria. And one of the buddies who had jabbed the elbow, he said, dude, you're going to have to say something, man. It's your turn to speak up. He said, "Uh uh-uh, no way am I saying anything. (laughs) Besides that, you know what? I think he might know exactly where he is. I'm not so sure that this was just a wrong turn. And that's one of the cool things about this story found in John chapter 4. It's that Jesus knew exactly where he was and where he was going. So if you got your Bibles open to John chapter 4, verse 3, it's going to begin like this. It says that he, or Jesus, he left Judea and returned to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria on the way. But that's not true. At least not true in the sense that we would normally say it. Samaria was sandwiched in between uh, Judea and Galilee. But most good Jewish people, of which, remember, Jesus and his disciples were, well, they would take the longer journey. They would travel around Samaria in order to get to Galilee. And it says that Jesus had to go. But come on. I think we all know by now that Jesus doesn't have to do anything. I mean, he pretty much charts his own path. No, this road trip in a place where no one would have felt it appropriate for him to be, he was there because unbeknownst to his disciples, well, he had set up a divine appointment for one woman 
who we will see obviously did not have the same appointment scheduled on her calendar. Now, Samaria was a no-go zone for good Jewish people because of the racial tension that existed between those two peoples. And to understand the conflict, you'd have to go back about 500 years in your Bibles. And in 2 Kings, it tells the story of how Israel was conquered by both Assyria and Babylon. And most of the Jewish people were then exiled back to those conquering nations, and they were forced into slavery. But there were some of those Jewish people who were allowed to remain in the land. For the most part, they were, they were more of the, the poor, the unskilled workers. The Assyrians and Babylonians figured, ah, we don't really have much use for them. But yet those nations also were concerned that those people left in the land could possibly increase in number, gain strength, eventually maybe revolt. Remember, it had happened long ago in Egypt. And so they both strategically, they would bring in these other nationalities of people and they would allow them to settle there in the land. Figuring that was such a large mix of different people, different cultures, even languages, that there was unlikely then to be one national identity strong enough to lead any kind of revolt against them. And so the Jewish people who were carried off in exile to the other nations, we find that they really clung to their Jewish race and their faith. And they made this pact. We will not assimilate. We will not adopt their ways. We will not marry their people. And meanwhile, back home, as the new foreign people started to move into the neighborhoods, well, there was a common theme that was expressed among many of the young Jewish men. <laughs> oh, that chick's hot, they thought. I don't care whether she's Jewish or not, I'd marry her. And so the bloodlines, cultures, and even the religions will begin to get mixed a little bit there in the land of Israel. And so when the Jewish captives came back from Babylon, they returned to their homeland 70 years later, they found that their relatives had well, sort of compromised their Jewish heritage. And so they called them traitors. They called them half-breeds. They said, oh, you're no longer part of our Jewish family. We're going to now call you Samaritans. And you're no longer welcome in our communities. You can't go to our churches. And so the boundary lines were drawn. And Samaria became that dirty S word that no good Jewish person wandered into. Let alone, of course, a religious teacher and his disciples but of course, Jesus is going to go there. Oh, and that's where the story gets really interesting. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along here. In verse 5, it says, Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob had gave his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus 
tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. Now it says that she was surprised because Jesus was obviously Jewish. But there's actually a lot to be surprised by in the story because there's a lot of things in there that are really out of place. It would have been surprising to her to even find a man there at the well because in that day and time, it was thought of as the woman's responsibility to collect the water. In that culture too, Jewish men, especially Jewish rabbis, they wouldn't even speak to a woman in public, let alone a Samaritan woman. And perhaps the most surprising of all is that it says all of this took place about noontime. Because of that time and place in the world, when the sun was at its height, well, no one in the right mind went to the well at noon. It was in the cool of the early morning when the sun was just beginning to rise that you would find the women traveling out. They would make about a mile-long trek out to the well, and there they would stand in line, and they would collect water, enough water to get their family through the heat of the day. And then after the sun had set, they would make the trek out there again to once again collect the water that they would need for night. It's still the way it works, actually, in a lot of places throughout the world where they don't have running water in their homes. And it may seem to us like a tedious and daunting task, you know, like lugging these jugs to and from town. But it actually became, for the women, a really important part of social life. Because it was there where they would all gather and have time to stand in the line. That they would get caught up on one another's lives. They would hear the, the daily news. And this Samaritan woman, at the well at noontime, was almost certainly the topic of talk. She had become the tabloid headline. It's why she's at the well now. She's avoiding all of the ladies at all cost, even if it means having to endure the hot noontime sun. And so this conversation with Jesus and this woman will ensue, where he's going to try to get her to face the very thing that she tries to avoid at all cost so that she might find freedom and a new, fulfilling kind of life. I would propose that it's actually the same way that a lot of times God will choose to work with us even today. I'm sure a lot come to church this morning, maybe even hoping that 
you know, God will cause some spiritual growth in our lives, but yet at the same time, we may have marked some areas off as off-limits to God, where we will avoid at all costs. And we will see, I think, even in this story, that that is the very place that Jesus has to go if we're truly desiring the kind of life that he will speak of. And so here's the conversation. In John 4, 9, Jesus, or she said to Jesus, well, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, well, you would ask me. And I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this is a very deep well. Where, are you get, where will you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Now, can you tell in this that she is just, well, she's a bit perplexed. She suspects that he might be talking about something maybe even more significant than just ordinary water. She's intrigued, and he has grabbed her attention by some hypotheticals here. If you only knew who who I am and what I could do with you, or you, can you imagine what living water would be like? What, what that could possibly mean to your life? And so Jesus is trying to get her to imagine something beyond just the ordinary. Now, we all struggle with this. We at times will all probably miss what God may be up to because we get so preoccupied with just sort of the ordinary details of life, don't we? In fact, sometimes we will even separate what feels ordinary and what might feel spiritual. Maybe when we go to church, we can feel this spiritual connection with God, and then we return to our lives throughout the week, and we feel like it's just sort of a return to the ordinary routines of life. But Jesus does this really intriguing thing throughout this conversation. It's, it's one of those really weird conversations to follow in the Bible. Because with this woman... She is going to, throughout the conversation, basically, she's going to keep insisting that they stay on topic, that they stay to sort of the, the normal, everyday details that she, she's familiar with in life. And Jesus will try to get her to see all of those things through sort of this spiritual lens. As if to say, oh, don't miss what I'm doing here. In fact, don't miss this divine appointment that I've set up. Sometimes 
we can miss what God may be doing or those divine appointments that he's made in our everyday lives because we get so focused on maybe just the ordinary details of life. And we don't look for God in the midst of them. We fail to see maybe sometimes what I would consider what he's trying to do behind the scenes oftentimes, right? Maybe it's sort of nudging us in our spiritual journey. Now, I've shared this question with you before, so it's nothing new, but I have grown to believe that this is one of the most powerful questions that we can ask ourselves in the midst of each day, each errand we may run, each conversation we have. It's this, what may God be up to here? Now, maybe it's nothing, but it could be something. And I think it's such a powerful question because it gets us to do a couple of things. One, of course, it gets us to really look for God, to search for him, even throughout the daily routines of life. And not only that, too, it motivates us to think of how we may be able to honor him in all of those things we do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's um, kind of an interesting section in there where Paul is speaking of trying to honor God in all of the ordinary things of life. And he does it by addressing this divisive issue that there was among the Christians of that day. Believe it or not, but it was just simply eating a meal. The argument was whether it should be viewed as a spiritual activity or if it's just an ordinary one. And so here was the situation. When some Christians went to the local market, they noticed that some meat was being sold at a really great price. It was the meat or the animals that had been sacrificed to false gods. And they thought, oh, score? With meat at this price, man, I'm really going to stock up. But others were appalled. They said, if you're eating the meat that pagans sacrifice to their false gods, well, it's like you're, be- you're condoning their behavior. As if you find their idol worship acceptable. Now, this, of course, to us seems like a very bizarre scenario because animal sacrifice, not so mainstream, right? So imagine this. I've invited you over to my house for dinner, and we sit down for a meal, and it looks delicious. We have some pleasant conversation, and you bite into the meat that I have prepared on my barbecue. Mmm. It's tender, juicy, full of flavor. You say, wow, this is one of the best steaks I have ever tasted. What's your secret? Now, I assure you, I am no master on the grill. So I say, it must just be the meat. Well, you say, I'm going to have to begin shopping where you shop. Where do you buy your meat? 
<laughs> well, that's actually a funny story. You see, I found this meat at such a great price that I couldn't pass it up. I found a fresh cow hit by a car <laughs> on the side of the road. It was free. <laughs> now, this may not bother some of you at all. Right? As you throw another piece of steak in your mouth, you think to yourself, good use of natural resources. All right. Right? Others of you would be appalled. Because the issue is not whether the meat tastes good or not. For you, this is moral principle. It is not a good Christian witness to invite people over and to feed them roadkill. So maybe you can sense, like, you know, the divisiveness that there, there may have been on this issue. The debate was over, is this a moral issue? Or is this an ordinary thing that doesn't have anything to do with God or maybe how we live for him? And Paul does this thing where he sort of takes it out of the realm of either being for God or against God. And he talks about it as something that should be done or not done, just simply based on your desire to honor God. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. This is one of my favorites. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, so you get to insert whatever ordinary thing in there. He says, do it all for the glory of God. So the activity itself isn't the important thing. It's what we're motivated or driven by. Are we trying to notice what God may be up to, even in the ordinary moments of our life, so that we may attempt to honor God even in those ordinary moments? I found this quote many years ago from uh, A.W. Tozer, and so it's one of my favorites now. He says this, It's not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It's why he does it. The motive is everything. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can thereafter do no common act. And so Jesus gets beyond just the ordinary with this woman at the well. And he's also going to get beyond the surface with her as well. Because this is going to take a very unexpected turn. Jesus does what you would expect. He speaks of himself as being the answer to a full and satisfying life. And because they're standing next to a well, well, he speaks about it in terms of water. And so he says this in verse 13, Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, please, sir, the woman said, Give me this water. 
then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. And so again, she seems a little unsure, <laughs> right, of what all this means, but it sounds really good. So she is sold on what Jesus is selling here. She is ready to receive what he is offering. And this is the response to close the deal in verse 16. He says, all right, great. Go and get your husband. <laughs> now, that's a pretty significant shift in the conversation. And it's not as though Jesus is some chauvinist pig who thinks that, you know, a woman can't make a big decision without a man around. No, he's not trying to be insulting. He's just trying to get real with her. He's trying to get beyond the surface level of things. Now, as a side note, I personally find this fascinating. That when she tells Jesus, I want the life you're offering, he doesn't respond the way that uh, we Christians will typically respond to such a request. Because our response is always, well, say this prayer. Right? So if you have been in church for long, you probably know the prayer. A lot of times we will call it a sinner's prayer or maybe a salvation prayer. It's where we would acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And we would say, God, I want to begin a new life with you. And it is a good and even necessary prayer if we truly want to begin following God with our life. But, you know, sometimes what happens is Christians and even I would say the church, we can make the mistake of sometimes treating it as if it's the end goal. Like, well, now you're good, you're saved, so all is well. But saying such a prayer is really only meant to be, to be the beginning of something not the conclusion. In fact, all throughout the, Bi the Gospels in the Bible, now this may sound very sacrilegious to some, but never did Jesus actually have someone say that prayer. Now, don't get me wrong, it's, it's good and again, necessary. But whenever someone would come up and say to Jesus, you know what, I want that kind of life that you're offering, he would always respond with some form of follow me, he would say. And it's because his emphasis was never salvation just for the sake of escaping hell. Sometimes we'll try to do that. He always emphasized salvation for the sake of transformation and a restored, life-giving relationship with him. And so then if our attitude ever becomes towards our own salvation, well, ah, I'm good, <laughs> I'm saved, no need to you know, make any tweaks or changes in my life, well, then we may be missing the point. Because God is always at work. 
And I think Jesus is bringing up the husband issue in her life. Because if he gave her the impression that all was needed was just to say a little prayer, well, then she was going to miss out on the point of this new eternal life. She wasn't going to find the freedom from what she was trying to avoid at all costs. It was never going to be that life-giving, soul-quenching kind of life that Jesus is describing here. She's going to have to get real with Jesus, to go beyond the surface and give him access to an area of her life that she obviously is not comfortable with. Maybe for some of us in here, that would be our next step that we need to take towards God in our relationship with him. Just simply getting real with him. Maybe it's giving access to him, an area of our life. Maybe it would be to begin saying a prayer like David. He prays this in Psalm 139, verse 23. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Now, that's a dangerous prayer. But if we will begin praying it, we, it will lead to a more and more and even more satisfying life. And so Jesus says, go get your husband. And in verse 17, she says, I don't have a husband. <laughs> that seems like an embarrassing moment for Jesus, huh? <laughs> you know, if we would have been there and witnessed that, we probably would have thought to ourselves, oh, dude, you can't just assume that about a woman, right? I'm like, ah, <clears throat> ouch, you were wrong. <laughs> but in the Bible, whenever it, you know, at first appears that Jesus is wrong, mm, read that carefully, because he's going to be right. In fact, Jesus is probably, well, he is the only man that can get away with making such a mistake. For example, he's the only guy that can walk up to a, a woman and say, oh, congratulations, when's the baby due? She'll say, I'm not pregnant. He'll say, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> only man, the only man who can do that. May look like he's wrong. Mm, he's not. So he says, why don't you go get your husband? I don't have a husband. Oh, mm, let's talk about that. And so in verse 17, Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. And if you're wondering, well, I wonder why she wouldn't be married to the man that she's with now. Well, it's probably because he's someone else's husband. So you can get an idea of sort of maybe the lifestyle here. And then Jesus says this, you certainly spoke the truth. Now be careful how you read that. 
Because if you're anything like me, you can easily read into it. Sometimes we can read Jesus' question and statement about the men in our life and see it as a judgment upon her. Like Jesus, you know, confronting her with her sin once and for all. In fact, if we had known this woman, we might very well think to ourselves, finally, someone's got the guts to do it. But there's really no judgment in Jesus' words. In fact, if you got an NIV translation, that's New Living. If you got an NIV translation, um, or even ESV, I like kind of the way that it puts it. Jesus says, what you have just said is quite true. In other words, you've been honest about yourself. That's a good thing. Because now we can begin to deal with it. You see, he doesn't wish to condemn her. He wishes to free her from the guilt and the shame that she has carried to this well. And so we will find that Jesus also goes way beyond just a normal forgiveness. I mean, you know how it is. When we forgive a person, it doesn't always mean that the relationship with them goes back to normal. Maybe there's going to have to be a different set of boundaries. Or we might even sort of begin to keep that person at a distance. And you know what? Sometimes that's very wise in order to safeguard ourselves. But God forgives in such a way where there are no safeguards for himself. He forgives to free us from shame, and to restore a relationship with them every single time. We would never advise someone to do that. God's going to forgive me no matter what awful thing I've done? Even though, get this, I keep doing it over and over again? That's something that is beyond what we would say is a normal forgiveness. You know, that's just reckless. And it is. The Bible describes God's love for us as him loving in a reckless sort of way. Because it describes it as unconditional. So it doesn't matter whether I love him back or not. He still feels the same way towards me. Nor does it matter what good or awful things I might do for or against him. His love for me is always sort of maxed out on that meter. It's reckless. And that's why he forgives the way in which he does, because his heart's desire is always to restore that relationship with him that has been broken by sin. But here's the toughie for us. We've got to be willing to accept that. There was a little boy who was visiting his grandparents, and he had been gifted his very first slingshot. It's a very exciting time in a boy's life. 
And so we went out into the woods, and he started practicing, and <laughs> he hardly hit any of the targets. And he came back to his grandparents' backyard there, and he soon spotted his grandma's pet duck. And he almost just impulsively, you know, little boys, he pulled back to aim, and he let that fault fly. And to his surprise, the stone hit, and the duck fell dead. Well, the little boy panicked. And so he desperately hid that dead duck in one of the wood piles, only to look up and see his sister Sally watching him. Oh, no. She had seen the whole thing. But she chose to say nothing. Well, a little later after lunch, Grandma suggested that Sally help clean up the kitchen and the dishes. And Sally said, well, actually, Johnny told me that he wanted to help out in the kitchen. Don't you, Johnny? And then she whispered to him, remember the dead duck? Johnny cleaned the dishes. And a little later on, Grandpa came in and said, hey, you kids want to go fishing? And Grandma piped up and said, well, actually, I'm going to need Sally to help me out with some things for dinner later on tonight. And Sally said, oh, no problem. That's already covered. Johnny said he'd like to help out. And once again, she whispered, remember the dead duck? And so Johnny stayed behind while Sally got to go fishing. Well, after several days of Johnny doing all of his chores Plus, his sisters, he decided he could not go on living life this way. And so he finally went to grandma and he confessed to her that he had killed her pet duck. And she came up and she gave him just the biggest hug. And she said, I know, Johnny. I was standing in the window and I saw the whole thing happen. And because I love you, I had decided already to forgive you. But I wondered how long you were going to let your sister make a slave out of you. <laughs> and isn't that what our unconfessed sin or maybe those unexposed areas of our life, that's, it's what it does to us. In our own sort of ways, we, we will go into hiding just like this woman at the well when God's desire is to bring us freedom, new life from those very things. And so Jesus and this woman will continue this conversation, which you'll get to explore in a little more depth in your, in your small groups throughout the week. And the end result is this divine appointment where Jesus will reveal to her in verse 26. He tells her, listen, I am the Messiah. In other words, words he is the source of this eternal life. And in verse 28, it says that the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now this is an amazing thing. Think about this. 
She comes from the village trying to hide all the ugly things about her. And now she runs back to the village celebrating the fact that Jesus knows all the ugly things about her. How bizarre is that? And yet, that is the response of someone who has accepted God's love and forgiveness in their life. Where they would celebrate, even declare the fact, oh, I was once lost and I still struggle, but I have been found. Or would echo some words of Paul where he says in Romans 7, 24, he says, oh, what a miserable person I am. If you got a different translation, it'll say wretched. What a wretched person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And he says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Last week, if you were here, we, we, we read a story of how Jesus had pots filled with dirty water, and he turned it into incredible wine for this joyous occasion. And now in this snapshot also, we see him take the emptiest of lives and fill it full of joy. But just as was the case, Ron talked about the servants last week. Even here, you have the woman at the well this week. Well, we play a role in being filled with such abundant life. Because we first must be real with God about who we are, maybe some areas of our lives, acknowledging our need for him as Savior and truly accepting that forgiveness and the new life that he offers. And I believe a second part of becoming more joy-filled is to be on the lookout for what God may be up to. What does God seem to be doing in my life? Or maybe how is it that God seems to want me to be involved in the lives of others, how can I find and honor him in even the ordinary details of life? We're going to take communion here in a minute. In fact, the worship team can come up if they would like. And if you're new to Journey, we, uh, we do communion each week. For some of you this morning, maybe it is your divine appointment where you would Acknowledge maybe that God has been working or speaking in your life and maybe even through just the ordinary routine details. We would take a cracker which represents Jesus' body and the juice which represents his blood, remembering the sacrifice that he made for us so that we may accept him as Savior, be forgiven for our sins, and have this new eternal life that would spring up and bubble up within us. And so you can take a moment on your own. The band's going to play. I'm going to pray for you. And would you just spend time celebrating? Maybe it's acknowledging 
what God is maybe trying to stir up and do in your life. And so, Lord, I pray that as we would take just these few moments with you and just a piece of cracker and juice, Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak into our lives. Lord, that you would work and that you would have your way, that we would acknowledge you as Savior and we would celebrate the fact, God, that we are forgiven, that we have new life. And so we love you in your name. Amen.